Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 27th of May. We are on Triple I every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. On the podcast this week, did you know that it's etiquette to invite every kid in the class to a party now? So we talk about what happens when you don't make the cut. And also Richard Suada, director of the St Kilda Film Festival, came in to talk about some of the highlights. It's on until the 5th of June. Uh, we look into what Liam Neeson and Tim Allen did before becoming famous actors. Sean O'Byrne talks about his latest book, Writers on Writers, Sean O'Byrne on Helen Garner, and Changing Footy Clubs and the negative impacts of coming out of retirement. Don't do either. For food interlude, Michael Harding gave us a wrap of restaurants to visit around Melbourne as we all open back up. Prue Blake swung by to tell us about her doomsday prepping, but we start the week with Ben Eltham wrapping uh, an election that you may have noticed. Triple R. The opposition has a point of order. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Order, order, order. You humbug. Order. 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 The level of interjections is far too high. Order. Here with his post-election analysis, we're joined by author and academic Ben Eltham. Morning, Ben. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, Anthony Albanese is today going to be sworn in as Australia's 31st Prime Minister. What have you made of the result? Well, that's right. So it's a change of government. It's uh, quite an extraordinary night on Saturday night. Uh, We saw, you know, very, very big swings um, away from the sitting coalition government, of course. Not necessarily to Labor, though, rather to a a series of independent candidates, of course, the well-known Teals, um, who picked up lots of seats, particularly in the inner city, and also to the Greens, who did very well, particularly in Queensland. So a teal slide, is, is uh, this, how significant is this, do you think? Really significant. Um, I, think it's, I think it's actually a generational change in Australian politics. So this is the disintegration of the Liberal base, basically. So, you know, if you were to ask me a couple of years ago, what's the Liberal base, right? What, what's the kind of core of the Liberal Party's vote? I would have said... It's rich people, right? It's affluent, well-educated, um, high-information voters um, who live in big houses in leafy suburbs. And these are exactly the places that have all gone and voted for independence this election. So um, that's really significant, I think. Um, you know, if you look at, at where the Liberal Party's at now, it's lost a swag of seats in places that really were, you know, some of its most... Um, the jewels in the crown, um, places like Kuyong, okay, <laughs> Frydenberg's own seat, uh, it's gone. You know, I don't think he's going to win that, even though he claims that it's still mathematically possible. Um, Goldstein, Tim Wilson, gone. Wentworth in uh, eastern suburbs of Sydney, Dave Sharma, gone, right? Um, Ryan in Brisbane, okay, which is um, where I grew up, actually, uh, very leafy, um, uh, middle ring suburbs of Brisbane, um, wealthy, affluent um, seat gone to the Greens. Um, so, you know, this, that's really, really important, I think. So the Liberal Party is in tatters, really. You know, it does. It, it, it now has a massive rebuilding um, phase, really, to, to, do, to deal with this, this change. And, of course, it wasn't just in uh, inner-city Melbourne or it, WA was a wipeout for the Liberals. So um, Labor had swings of something like 10% in Western Australia. Um, Liberals lost seats there that were on 13% margins. You know, that's nearly unheard of. Um, Again, you know, more um, really, really um, important seats 
jewels in the crown of the West Australian Liberal Party gone. So Liberal Party in tatters, um, the Albanese government will be able to probably um, get to a majority. I think it will get to 76 seats and have a majority in its own right. But um, it doesn't need to because it will be able to govern with the support of those independents if it needs to. Mm. And what happened in WA? Yeah, well, you know, this is, a, a again, a sort of generational realignment. So for a very long time, Western Australia has, has been a conservative state federally. Um, I think Labor had only three of 15 seats over there going into this election. And what we saw there was, was essentially a wipeout for the Liberals. I mean, um, they, they lost, I think, four seats, maybe five seats over there. Um, and this kind of replicates the wipeout out that they saw at the Western Australian state election um, a year or so ago with Mark McGowan absolutely wiping the floor. So Western Australia flips from blue to red, and that's really significant in the sort of, you know, structure of the next parliament. What do you think there is to be said for um, lockdowns? You look at, the, you look at as you call it, a wipeout in WA, you look at um, being 50Ks from a Liberal seat in, in Melbourne, and we're two of the most lockdown places the federal government seemed to kick us a lot. And then what part do you think that played in determining votes this year federally? I think it was significant. I think voters identified with their state premiers um, throughout the pandemic and they thought that it was the state governments ultimately who kept them safe. It was state governments who were in charge of the public health measures. It was state governments that were in charge of the public hospitals. And for better or for worse, uh, voters decided that that they were going to go with the premiers, I think. Um, And and it was partly the the structure that Morrison himself ironically set up with his national cabinet, where he brought the premiers into that national cabinet. He kept Labor out federally in opposition and, and so he kind of set up this um, this dialogue between himself and the premiers. And really, the federal government got into this position where they were, they were very critical of the premiers. We saw that here in Victoria, where you had people like Josh Frydenberg kicking against Dan Andrews, constantly criticising lockdowns, criticising Andrews and the Andrews government. I think that did play a big part, and voters remembered. And of course, in Western Australia, the Morrison government at one stage backed Clive Palmer in his legal challenge against um, the Western Australian border protections there. So um, Western Australians just decided that Scott Morrison wasn't on their side. And I think that led um, in a large part to the wipeout. Mm. Uh, And now day one, I suppose, what does a Labor government, what's in store, do you see? So that's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, we went through the whole campaign. We said Labor is a small target. You know, Labor doesn't have much of a policy program. Well, now we get to find out. Um, So the first thing Albanese is doing is he's uh, flying to Tokyo to have a meeting of the so-called Quad, which is a a big diplomatic uh, initiative. It's uh, the US, Japan, India and Australia are the so-called Quad nations. So Albanese flies off as the Prime Minister um, this morning, um, he's taking Penny Wong. Um, and, you know, we'll get to see what Labor's agenda is in power pretty quickly. Albanese says he's going to have a conference of all state premiers um, to decide where we're at with the pandemic response. He's going to move ahead with uh, a bunch of his uh, economic plans. Um, he's sworn in Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher. And here's another really interesting thing about the results. Labor will have a friendly Senate. So... Um, looks like Labor's going to win 
26 senators and the Greens have done very well, as we sort of haven't quite mentioned yet. But the Greens had a really good election. They've picked up three senators. So between Labor and the Greens, and it looks like David Pocock, the rugby Mm. player, has got himself elected in the ACT as a senator. So that equals 39, which is a majority in the Senate. Um, So I expect Labor will be able to pass most of its legislation in this term of parliament. So it will be uh, it will be able to do pretty much what it wants to do in terms of passing laws. And that's very significant, I think. Mm. Jim Chalmers has said, you know, no new treasurers had ever inherited one trillion dollars in debt. Is it possible this is a bit of a hospital pass election and, you know, if things tank, Labor gets blamed for it? Well, Labor always gets blamed, particularly in an environment with very hostile media. Um, you know, and we've already seen News Limited sort of unhinge over Saturday night night's result. I had a very funny moment where I switched over on Saturday night to watch what Sky News was doing. I said this very, very sad Peter Credlin sort of almost <laughs> crying on television with a big Labor wins Chiron in the background. <laughs> um, so you can see that News Limited is not going to take the defeat well. Um, so they'll be critical of whatever Labor does, and that's particularly the case economically. Uh, Labor does inherit some tricky economic circumstances. Unemployment's down. Growth is up, but inflation is high. So Labor's got to do something about the cost of living crisis. Um, Chalmers is right, of course. Uh, Australia's racked up a bit of public debt um, under the last government. But I I think we need to put that in context. You know, uh, Australia still has very low public debt compared to most industrialised nations. So there's plenty of wriggle room, really, in terms of paying back the deficit and the debt and things like that. It's about how much Labor really cares about that kind of fiscal rectitude. And I'm hoping that Labor could take a a leaf out of Morrison's book, actually, and not worry too much about that stuff. Do the things that it needs to do. Um, But there'll be a temptation to switch to austerity and try and wind back the budget. I think that will be a bad idea for Labor, actually, but we'll have to see. Uh, Richard Colbeck, no longer aged care minister. (laughs) A whole bunch of ministers now, obviously, are out the door. In fact, a whole bunch of politicians have had their careers ended. Um, So we'll get a whole new cabinet. We don't know who's in the new cabinet yet. Labor hasn't announced it. We've got a few um, ideas. Obviously, we we expect that most of the the Labor's front bench will will take up the roles that Albanese had given them in opposition, but there might be a bit of a reshuffle. Um, There's some talented people coming into the parliament, and I think that's worth talking about too. So... For example, in Brisbane, uh, the Greens knocked off a couple of sitting members up there. And, you know, there's, there's some interesting Greens coming into the parliament. Um, Liz Watson-Brown is the new member for Ryan. She's a distinguished sustainability architect. Um, the Teal candidates are pretty smart, mainly women with professional backgrounds. You've got people like Monique Ryan, a okay, pedi- pediatric neurologist, so a very smart lady coming in to represent the voters of Kuyong. So, you know, in net terms, I think it's a it's a big uh, it's a big increase in the skills and talents of our parliament. So that's a that's an advantage for our democracy. How successful do you think the Teals are going to, and the Greens for that matter, will be on pushing? better action on climate change? You said if the Labor have, have a majority, but will they, do you think that will change the net target? It, so this will be the, where I think a lot of the politics of the next term of government will become. It'll become, now, on election night, Albanese said, we're going to end the climate wars. I think that's dead wrong. I actually think climate's going to move to the centre of politics because now Labor gets to do something about climate change 
And it's going to be dragged, I think, to a more ambitious target and to higher emissions reductions by this crossbench. So the Teals, the independents, they want a 60% reduction in carbon emissions, not the not Labor's kind of 34% um, target and certainly not the coalition's measly 28%. Um, the Greens obviously want very strong action on decarbonisation. There'll be a lot of pressure on Labor now to drag it left. Labor wants to stay in the centre. That's how they kind of, you know, got to win the election. Um, but if you look at the makeup of the new parliament, it's quite progressive now. So, um, yeah, I expect Labor will be dragged to the left to stronger action than, than it currently has. Can anything be inferred from the loss of Christina Keneally? Yeah, don't parachute a factional boss into a seat, you know. <laughs> they should should have stopped trying this stuff years ago. So, yeah, Keneally failed to win the seat of Fowler. It was a Labor seat. That swung to a, a sort of coalition-aligned independent, Dai Li, um, and, you know, once again, you know, they've paid the price for taking voters for granted. Um, in the neighbouring seat of Reid, where Labor nominated Sally Situ, um, you know, she did really well. She won. Um, she knocked off the sitting Liberal member. So I think, you know, um, where Labor nominates good candidates that represent their electorate, as we've seen in Melbourne with Cooper, you know, Jed Carney fought off a, a strong challenge in Cooper from the Greens candidate Celeste Little. Um, where voters feel like they like their local candidate and that, that that candidate represents them, then they're fine. When they parachute in a factional boss, people know that. They work it out and they don't like it. Mm. What about the bloodletting of the Liberals? How long do you reckon that will last and where do you think it might end up? It will last years um, and it will be bloody. Um, where it will end up, I think, is a really interesting question. I don't know, obviously. It's um, you know the Monday after the election, but... Um, you know, as was threatened during the campaign, right, you've lopped off like five or six of the most moderate people in the Liberal Party. And so this is really the destruction of the the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. They're, they're sort of electorally negligent now. So Peter Dutton, I expect, will be the new opposition leader and he will take the Liberal Party right. So I expect the Liberal Party to reorganise around a kind of US Republican model. They're going to be more right wing. They're going to be more strident. They're going to be more partisan. Um, in the short term, I don't think that will be very popular. But in the long term, I think that could be um, potentially a, quite a dangerous force in Australian politics. So, um, you know, parties don't go away even when they have big defeats like the Liberal Party have had. They're going to reorganise now and, and we'll, we'll wait to see how they kind of re-emerge in, in coming years. But um, I expect that they'll, they'll re-emerge as, as a more partisan, more culture war. You know, they'll be, they'll, they'll be um, even sort of nastier and <laughs> more kind of hyper-motivated than the current mob. It was a long election campaign. I know it's uh, folly to reduce, uh, you know, trends to moments, but what, was there anything during the campaign that you stuck out and saw as maybe consequential? I think the really important decision was for Morrison not to go to the election last year. I think if he'd gone to the election in, say, November, he would have won comfortably. Labor wasn't ready back then. I mean, arguably, he wasn't ready either, but he could have done it. Uh, instead, you know, he decided to have a very long six-week election campaign. It didn't work. It seemed to only reinforce in voters' minds why they didn't like Scott Morrison. You know, there's no doubt that this election was a repudiation of Morrison personally. I mean, he was the leader. He had his face on every screen in the country for months. 
you know, for years. Um, and people decided they didn't like him. And in particular, uh, educated, professional, um, you know, uh, high-income women decided that they didn't like him. And those were the voters who deserted from the Liberal Party in droves on Saturday night. Mm. Well, Ben Eltham, thanks always uh, for the chat and for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure to cover it for you guys. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. One of my mates has got a couple of kids and she's throwing a birthday party for one of them and there are going to be 30 children there. I thought that was quite excessive, uh, but she was told... Wait, how how old's the birthday? What's the... Uh, I think grade four, something like oh, that. Grade four, okay. five, yeah, primary school. Old enough to yeah to remember it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes they have first birthdays. Hundreds of people. Mm. It's insane. Yes, um, but yeah, and she was saying that parents got told that if you're going to have a birthday party, you have to invite everyone. You're not allowed to exclude anyone. Parents got told that by who? By the schools, if you were throwing birthday parties. What? Yeah, so they weren't. Uh, so if you're going to throw a party, everyone in the class had to be invited. That is ridiculous, and it's absolutely got nothing to do with the teachers. Yeah, oh so I'm not sure if they had a couple of parties in the past, but a, a couple of the other, a couple of my other friends said, "Yeah, that's the same as us. We don't, we can't have a party." Can you just not call it a party? Like a most? Yeah, maybe just a, a get together or some five friends over for a play. Exactly. Well, that's a thing. I mean, oh. it's huge, huge. So she has to, yeah, cater for all these people because she wanted to have a party and, and didn't want to exclude everyone. Oh. I remember being in primary school and not getting invited to parties. Oh, Absolutely. Jesus. And it also not, not invited, not inviting everyone doesn't mean you hate them. No, not at all. Like I um, But I remember I had – I used to always have a birthday party. I was very lucky. Yeah. Um, and when I turned 10, I went to Dark Zone. Uh, Is that like a time zone? Well, it's the laser tag. Oh, laser oh tag, yes. Yeah. Gotcha. In Box Hill. Um, and I invited, I think I only invited four friends, but I invited three boys and one girl and the uproar (laughs) that there were more boys than girls. And that was inappropriate for a little girl to have more boyfriends than girlfriends. Who was saying that? This this mother who conspired against me for years, Angela, I won't say her last name. Anyway, a mother conspired against. She me. did. She thought I was. A, just as a side note, to give you an idea of this mum, mm-hmm. she um, requested that I wouldn't be in her daughter, who was my friend, her daughter's oh. class the next year, because I was in bad influence because you. I because I watched Friends and Friends had a lesbian storyline, <laughs> so I wasn't in my class with my friends the next year because I was too risque. Apparently, anyway, it's a oh. whole thing. Wow. <laughs> All right. That's insane. So, yes, you, I had a more. bad influence. Yeah, I know. Look at me. I'll tell you, I'm thinking Daniel's a bad influence on us three, just quietly, <laughs> not you. Could mine be a better influence? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, was, I was in grade four and uh, a boy in my class had a, a birthday party and I didn't get invited. I was a little bit spewy about it. My younger brother was friends with the birthday boy's younger brother and he got invited. <gasps> and I was like, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to this guy's birthday party. I was like, you? How did you get an invite? He's like, I'm mates with his brother. I was like, oh, can you ask if I can come? Oh, my God. How embarrassing. <laughs> How embarrassing. Never asked to come. Never. So I, but I was, I just, can you ask? Like, I've got nothing to do today. So he asked his mate, oh who my. asked a brother, because the brother come back and said, no, no girls allowed. Oh, okay. Right? So my brother says to me, no girls allowed. And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to go anyway. He's like, well, you asked me. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I've got better things to do. I'm going to Dark Zone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the one girl chosen out of Mon's friendship group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People at Dark Zone, people used to cover their 
packs or whatever to oh, prevent the laser that. from registering as a hit. Did they? Yeah, oh, cheats. Yeah, they are cheats. It's mm. grotesque. Someone made the good point on the text line that they would, it's for the parents, like you wouldn't want to go to 30 parties a year. There's your weekends gone. This yeah, is an example really. of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. <laughs> really. Oh, everyone, everyone's friend. Okay, so you turn up to the party and you're not really wanted. Yeah. And then you've got an abiding memory of being outcast um. instead of maybe spending the time the way you want. Okay, you're a parent. You can't afford to cater for 30 cater kids. Cater for 30 freaking kids. Exactly. Uh, I'm really upset about it. Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can exclude people on our own terms. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's part of life. It's fine. We, we, um, when I was in Samoa, I, there were a bunch of Aussies. I was there with other Aussie volunteers. And everyone, most people went home for Christmas, but there were a group of us that didn't. So there were, say, 10 of us that didn't. And we're like, great, we'll have a big Aussie Christmas here in Samoa. But half of the group were like, we're having a private lunch and it is going to be a five-course degustation. And we're like, okay, well, we were going to have a barbie and we'll, everyone bring some food. Uh, and they made it very clear to us, we thought that we would all be doing this together um, until we had a couple of conversations at different parties and they were quite clear that they were having their own party. And we're like, okay, all right, well, we'll do ours too then, I guess. Meanwhile, my... One of my best mates, Chubbs, who I've spoken about, mm-hmm. she was Generous dating. Chubbs. Yes, she was dating someone, well, her wife now, um, on the other side, and we we're like, "Are we not going to be able to hang out at Christmas?" And she's like, "Well, I, I've been told that I'm here for lunch." I'm like, "And I can't come, can I?" She's like, "I'm sorry, I'm <gasps> sorry, but yeah." I was like, "Well, let's meet up afterwards." But they were so adamant; they just didn't want us to be a part of anything. Anyway, we met up later and had a bloody ball. But yeah, it's it's. I guess they just didn't like us. They just didn't want us there, which is fine too. But don't you dare take away my chubs. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the alliance. You can't break that. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, they're married. Good for them. Yeah. I like that also Mon um, made a new best friend, didn't you? When? Well, after the next year. When I wasn't allowed because I was talking about lesbians all the time, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Mon made a new best friend. And then uh, the, the other one was like, hey, what's up? And Mon's like, we're on a break. <laughs> <laughs> I love that her issue with me watching Friends wasn't that it's, you know, a questionable show, yeah. but just because there was, like, these side characters that were called lesbians and that's about as far as the story went and I was going to... Anyway, look, it was, was in, it was in the 90s and I'm not over it. Yeah, uh, no, obviously. So yeah. I had friends come over when I was in <laughs> primary school, yeah, primary school, maybe early high school, um, and I was watching R-rated horror movies. <gasps> I mean, horror movies, not a porno. It's fine. People were just dying. Uh, anyway, my bloody dibber-dobber mates went and told their parents and then right. they weren't allowed to hang out with me anymore. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. I mean, I threw a party and I had a pool, not a big – it was not – Above ground pool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, like everyone got papillomas. So sometimes <laughs> it's not worth Maybe they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, how do you go with the um, after? I remember there was a party in high school that I was invited to, but some of my friends were. And um, what, I don't know if I was heard about it. But I was a little, you know, you, never, you just don't want to be the one missing out. Mm, but yeah. this girl wasn't in my class. And anyway, on the Monday, I like saw her and I said, oh, how was your party? And my friend said, you can't ask her that. You weren't invited. 
Oh, you're making yeah. her feel bad. I'm like, I'm just being, I'm being polite. Yeah. Tell me about your great party. Was it good? How was uh, it? <laughs> yeah, you were just being naive. Uh, yeah. Not passive aggressive. I thought I was like, I was making a real effort. Like, I'm not going to make this weird. I'm not going to pretend I don't know your party was on. I'm just going to say, hey, how was your party? Yeah. And then my friend and then told me off. Gasps from yeah. everyone. Like, you didn't learn the she primary lesson, party. which is uh, growing up is 90% of life is pretending something didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Mon. Melbourne's own Triple R. The St Kilda Film Festival is Australia's largest and longest-running short film fest, turning the spotlight on exceptional films by both emerging talent and short works by accomplished industry professionals. The 2022 program is out now and joining us to run through some highlights. Ahead of opening night on Friday, we're joined by Director of St Kilda Film Festival, Richard Sawada. Welcome back to Breakfast. It's yeah, thanks. Morning, team. I hope you're all well. You're looking great. Oh, thank you. We try our best. First time in the studio for me for two years or is so. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, so you came on board on 2020, is that right? Correct, correct. Uh, And now, how does this year compare to the the last couple of years for you? Oh, my Lord. It's just a different thing altogether. Like in 2020, we were full steam ahead. And then March, of course, everything fell apart. Uh, And so we went online, which was, we managed to do pretty well, actually. I'd been working with online delivery streaming service one I developed in WA actually so I kind of knew the ins and outs and that sort of thing it was still a big change but we moved into that zone pretty well but for the St Kilda Film Festival doing that we reached like 44,000 people that year around the country which was amazing Mm. Uh, and then the following year 2021 last year we had this kind of we knew things couldn't maybe not go the way that we planned so we had an online component and a physical component and we were ready to go completely online should it all go belly up which it went belly up as we all know Uh, and so for this year we um, planned again another hybrid event and we thought that based on last year when we were forming the budgets and everything that it was highly likely we would be online not in the physical world and as things turned out it was exactly the opposite as what Mm. we thought which was Exactly everything the last two years has taught us, like, you know, expect the unexpected, I (laughs) guess. So we're in the physical world. Um, The team behind the event is great. They're fully experienced in delivering big, big events like the St Kilda Festival. Uh, And so we're ready to rock and we're in the real world now. And, you know, so happy to do it. It's really great. I remember your opening night last year was maybe the last night that anyone could gather. It was very close to it. Well, the event was shut down because of um, health regulations about three or four days later. So we managed to squeeze like yeah. three things in and then we were shut. Mm. But it went absolutely nuts because there was it was just in that window between lockdowns, you know, and everyone was so happy to get out and so exuberant mm. and everything and then, uh-uh. That's right. Know. So now what was the uh, – is there a guiding principle this year? How have you approached it? Uh, good films, mm-hmm. good films, good films, good films. <laughs> that's that's kind of it. I approach it from a, quite a strong curatorial perspective. Like, uh, there's a lot of act- actually, there's a lot of really good movies that I saw, and we got more than six hundred entries, which I tried to watch almost all of them and did. Uh, so. Uh, there's a lot of good films in those 600 which didn't actually make it into the festival because I look at the films in a way that they 
so they go together. It's not just, oh, good film, good film, good film, whack it in and mm-hmm. hey, presto, film festival. It's much more um, story-driven mm. for me. And, and when I say story-driven, I mean the films kind of need to go together in their own journey and their own kind of language. And this might sound like a strange kind of thing, but when I'm programming them, I look at the films as like shots in my movie. And if you're making a movie and you shoot... The best thing maybe that you've ever shot in your entire life, but it has no relationship to the story that you're trying to tell, you don't put it in. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of how I look at it. So uh, that's the, the theme really, I suppose. And I try and um, uh, just try, try and grab the creative mood that I see coming through in all the films. And they do speak to each other over you know quite a number of films. So that's, that's how I try and do it. So for audiences, it's like, not a bunch of short films, but each program in the festival is like a feature film journey. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So it has that kind of impact on the audience. So that's how I do it. Uh, what is the mood that's coalesced? Look, it's funny. There's nowhere near as many comedies as what you would expect over the last, you know, uh, just generally. But that's not surprising in many ways. But what I've found, and it's really, really super interesting is to me anyway, is how, um, I don't know, how... true the voices are in the films like how everything is just boiled down to its core elements of story and relationships with with characters so everything's really very tight it's really ensemble driven you know the scripts are really really tight and everything is just so finely tuned uh and that's kind of a really considered approach which I kind of haven't seen in, in Australian cinema, feature film or otherwise, for a long time. You know, it's it's not about grand statements or anything like that. It's about what's happening in your house and what's happening next door and what's happening in, in your community. And look, you know, I was thinking about what happened with the election over the weekend, and this is exactly the same thing. You know, it's like community, stories close to home, thinking about what's happening in your immediate environment, mm-hmm. and here you go. And that's kind of the theme, you know. It's really... It's brought right back to, to, to basics, which I really, really love. Can we cherry-pick some showcases? Oh, you want me to put one child above the uh-huh. other? No, no, just whoever's grabbing your eye at the moment doesn't uh-huh. mean you love them anymore. Look, uh, I have to say the LGBTQIA plus program, uh, Pride Without Prejudice, is the, um, the over, overarching banner. That's, of all the programs... That's probably my favourite. It's so, like what I was saying, so finely tuned and so personal and so authentic. And the films are very, very artful. You know, they have such beautiful lines and really wonderfully constructed and really honest honest films uh, and with great, you know, artistic uh, attributes. So in terms of a program overall, that's screening at the Pride Centre, by the way. And mm. for people that haven't been to the Pride Centre, that building is incredible. It's really It's a well. marvel, isn't it? I drove it? past oh. it recently and I, yeah, it looked like a spaceship. It, it <laughs> yeah, does. Yeah, it does, but, doesn't it? Yeah, but the architecture is so great inside. It's so fluid and really, um, I don't know, fluid's the word. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's one film. But then there's another film um, called Bunker, The Last Fleet, which is a First Nations sci-fi. And it's kind of, if I could align it to anything that's, that people may have seen, it's kind of got a Dune sort of feel to it. But the scope is incredible. It's such a big movie uh, and, you know, really uh, beautifully acted, wonderfully visualised, uh, but the scale. And I know the filmmakers, it's, it's made in South Australia, and I know the filmmakers are working on a feature film version of 
this short film already. Uh, so when you see things like that coming through, it's like when I, it came through early in the call for entries when I was watching things, and I thought, you know what, I, I just have to put this in. The ambition is just so mm. big, mm. Uh, and so that's screening in a program called Tales of Mystery, Mystery and Imagination, which is like uh, you know sci-fi and fantasy and magical realism and all that sort of thing which is really big too at the moment actually magical realism yeah. you know just snapping out of the yes. real world into a fantasy world well, again well, not surprising well uh, documentaries a favorite of yours oh yes i love documentaries uh i've made a couple produced a couple uh i'm producing three at the moment actually three short documentaries in western australia i've commissioned an executive producing so I love documentaries, uh, and the documentary program. You always know that you're you can have a good documentary program uh, in the St Kilda Film Festival. So these again, but again, they're, they're really personal stories. You know, they're really next door stories and over the back fence kind of type stories, which is very beautiful. You know, really lovely intimate moments and uh, very gentle, um, you know, subjects and very gentle relationships and that sort of thing. Uh, so the documentary program is very strong. A whole variety of things too, because animated documentaries are really quite big at the moment. They have been for a little while. Uh, so there's a couple of really great animated documentaries in there. I love that style. It's mm. so... You know, it just crosses over everything. Is there something about a filmmaker who seeks to tell a story? You know, they're not a jobbing journalist or something like that. Do they approach it in a in a way without necessarily a deadline that, I don't know, evokes heart that you might not get elsewhere? That's kind of a hard question because with... A documentary can work in a couple of ways. Either you can live with it in a very longitudinal way and it's like consumes your life for a very long time. Mm. Or there are moments that you know are not going to last. And in fact, one of the I know it's not with St Kilda Film Festival, but the, one of the ones that I've um, commissioned in WA at the moment, the, the uh, chief subject, who is a, a First Nations elder who lives in East Perth in WA, he's not very well at all. And so they had to really... And it was different when they started thinking about the movie so they had to really rethink the way that they you know how fast they had to do things mm. and with this, the kind of stories that they could pull out and the, you know just the the way to approach this the the um oral history um and so you do see that kind of thing in documentary uh in, in the documentaries in the program and there's a couple in there there's one called teddy which is shot in fitzroy um and that's a very in the moment, like anything can happen, let's be ready for it, this story can go in any direction right now. So we don't know what the end is going to be, we don't even know what the beginning is going to be. Um, so you can see that in the, in the film and that kind of immediacy uh, and the other films which are much more longitudinal, uh, you know, they both sit in a really, really good balance. Mm. But I, th I hope that answers your question. It does, yeah. I, 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 could, I could chat film with you all day. Um, um, Let's do it. Well, well then, is, is, St Kilda, is the festival still an Academy Awards qualifying event? It sure is. Mm. Uh, it, it is. And if certain films win in certain categories, not certain films, but if films win in certain categories, that allows them to be eligible to go into contention to for consideration for an Oscar, which I always love saying. Mm. Uh, I love... Like, I don't have many dealings directly with the Academy, but I have had. And I used to work at Acme as well, and I did have some dealings with the Academy then. And it's so much fun. It's just like this crazy magic dust, this crazy Hollywood, <laughs> you know, magic dust that falls on you. And it's kind of like, uh, it's another stratosphere. in When you, when you love cinema like we all do, mm. it's, it's kind of another level. And 
you know, taking away the, the, the gigantic slap this year and all that sort of thing, which really kind of devalued things a little bit, mm. was, but was pretty amazing to look at. It's still working, talking to the Academy and working with the Academy and working in that environment and also working with the filmmakers to, um, to potentially be, be there and be on the stage like people like Adam Elliott was and the, mm. the cinematographer, I can't remember his name, who um, uh, was the cinematographer in June who won the Oscar this year who had a film in the St Kilda Film Festival a few years ago. You know, th- it can be done and mm. you can be there at, at the peak. I guess if that's yeah. what you if that's what you want to think. So dealing with the academy is uh, it's a heap of fun. It's Greg Fraser. It's crazy. Yeah, Greg Fraser. That's the one. Uh, so where can we go? How should we get our act together? <laughs> well, that's an even longer question. So the but uh, you can go to the St Kilda Film Festival website, stkildafilmfestival.com.au. Tickets are online. They're selling super well. I'm mm. so happy. Uh, audiences have really grabbed the opportunity of being part of this and, and being being back at the movies. It's on at the Astor primarily, although we are doing a gig with Kelton Pell, the great First Nations performer. He's coming over from WA with his film One Night the Moon that Rachel Perkins directed. Uh, so And Uncle Jack Charles is going to be hosting that event. So we've got music all afternoon and the film and uh, talking and all that sort of thing. And Kelton, he's amazing. He can talk, that guy, as we all know <laughs> Uncle Jack Charles can too. Uh, so that's going to be a big day, but it's primarily happening at the Magnificent Astor. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, well, congratulations. Opening night sold out. Uh, yes, it is sold right. out. It is sold out, my lord. Uh, okay, <laughs> but it's running from the 27th of May to the 5th of June. Yeah. For information tickets, please go to stkildafilmfestival.com.au. Uh, Richard Sawada, thank you for wrangling it all together and joining us this morning. Uh, look, thanks, thanks for letting me come in. It's always a pleasure coming in. I met a guy at an audition yesterday who uh, was an actor, uh, but prior to that he was an engineer. He studied uh, for many years and then worked and didn't really enjoy it, but then had a near-death experience and then went, okay, I don't want to do this anymore and became an actor. Um, I was looking at – well, I was thinking about different – I haven't had a near-death experience, but I've had a change of career multiple times. Um, I've worked in sports – Admin, I worked in as a lifeguard at the gym, real estate, painting, many, many different things. Uh, not because I nearly died, just because I think I was bored. Um, but Mon, prior to working here, you've been a teacher for many years, yeah? Not many. No, I was a teacher. Oh, okay. I've been a teacher for four years. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and then before that, I worked in like marketing and oh, okay. things like that. Yeah, but, right. Yeah, because the nature of community radio, you do it for free. I've been, yeah. you know, I've always had it on the side. Yeah, right. Of whatever I've done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Teaching was a bit of a career change. Like, I was doing this before I was doing teaching, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. And you meet so many teachers who come to it from other things. I feel like it's a common option. Mm. Like, so many ex-lawyers, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll just quickly touch on this before I get to you, Daniel. On your, you've been in media for the last 20 years, though, haven't you? Well, yeah, I'm a bit of a one-trick pony. Yeah, well, great at it, though. You're the professional. <laughs> You're a very good pony, Daniel. <laughs> So pretty pony. <laughs> um, just quickly though, speaking of teachers, so I was looking at um, celebrity actors, uh, what they were doing before they became actors. Right. Uh, and so Liam Neeson was uh, trained to be a teacher and he was in Ireland and he was um, on placement and he got sacked because he punched a 15-year-old boy oh. who had a knife and was threatening him. Oh, okay. <laughs> well. Uh, <laughs> what was that? What was that, sorry? I don't know. It's like... My, my, Self-defence. 
Well, yeah. Mike, you know that Mike Tyson incident on the plane? Where he beat someone up. Yeah, but then the guy that got beaten up weren't oh, yeah, no, a fair cop. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What did the guy do to him? He, uh, he was just antagonising. Yeah, I think he just picked a fight with God, but it's like, all the people. But it's like Liam Neeson gets approached with a knife or attacked and then punches. And, and like, saves Do everyone? we call it a wash? I know, yeah. Mm. Um, He said that the school was quite volatile um, and students, it was often very hard to get their attention and then, yeah, this one particular student pulled out a knife and, yeah. Imagine being that student and then in the future watching Taken. Taken? (laughs) (laughs) That would scare the shit out of you. Oh, my God. Thank you. I would have loved to have Liam Neeson as my teacher. Right? What a story to tell. I probably would have had a crush on him. It would have been awkward. Yeah, I'm sure many did. Uh, Cheryl Crow was also a teacher. She was a music teacher in primary school. Peaches is still a music teacher. For Peaches who right, really? F the pain away and tent in your pants and, you know, <laughs> very crude, wonderful songs, uh, is a music teacher in Canada or has kind of been throughout her career. Yeah. I worked with a Canadian a few years ago and she's like, oh, yeah, she, she taught my niece, like, New school music. Imagine. That's insane. Yeah. That's fun though. I guess that's the thing with a lot of the actors. So going through, um, a lot of them are, are auditioning at the time, but then having to find other work. So these are the other jobs I guess that they've had um, before then. Um, Tim Allen from Home Improvement. Mm-hmm. Yes. He was um, he was locked up. He was convicted a convicted drug dealer. He spent what? two two years and four months in federal prison. He was caught with half um, half a kilo of cocaine. Half a kilo. Half a kilo. (laughs) 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 So this is is. 1978. Yeah. So he was in the cops bust. Oh, that's huge. It is huge. He was supposed to be in prison for uh, for life, but he ratted on uh, a dozen other drug dealers. Oh, you dirty dog, Tim. Dirty (gasps) dog. Yeah. And then and then he became an actor after that. Uh, Yeah, stand up comedian, and then went into acting, and then yeah. In the nineties, with Home Improvement, insane, oh. right? Half a kilo, yeah, pretty. Uh, Good redemption story. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Always no. be a snitch. I think is the moral. <laughs> I can't believe that. That's so, that seems really shows. against his character. Oh, snitch. completely. I know nothing about him apart from that noise. Like, I, yeah, well, and, and Toy Story. Oh yes. Well, that's the thing because he's like a. A family-friendly actor yeah. now, uh, but went from stand-up. So when I, I did read that in this article, I was like, oh, I'm going to double-check that. And, yeah, multiple articles about it. I was like, how do people not know this? Wow. Also like that that's in the uh, category of career change. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or what they were before they were actors, I guess. Um, a few actors have worked in morgues. So Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito both worked oh. in morgues beforehand, dressing up the corpses before funerals. Mm. All right. Someone's got to do it. Good on them. Yeah. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito. Was it, it, it had a hairdresser to corpses for women, made them beautiful before. Oh, that's nice. Being tended to by <laughs> precious, gentle Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> um, Channing Tatum. Guess what he was before? An Stripper. Actor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean is, is that how he got his role? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Oh, can I see? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, I think. he must be a pretty shining light you know when vc results come out and it's like oh i you know look at me don't worry about oh, your yeah, result yeah. i did it channing tatum must be like four strippers oh yeah aspiration yeah yeah mm. it's like kylie for neighbors 100 percent. yeah look you could be the next kylie or you could be one of the 500 million people who've been on neighbors and not done anything afterwards exactly and yeah. not ever get a nomination for a logie yes yeah, exactly still grieving <laughs> um harrison ford was a carpenter Absolutely, Indiana Jones. I mean, that's, that's oh, yeah. just 
I guess that's how he got the part. No, I'm sure he, he did some auditions. Um, and yeah. Hugh Jackman was a gym teacher. Of course he, of course he was a gym instructor. Was he? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he probably still does that on the side. Um, <laughs> but Daniel, you have worked in media, but across many different. You don't want to talk about it. No, no, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I just find it interesting. A lot of the different jobs that you have done throughout media. Do you want to touch on any of them or not? No, I mean, look, out of high school, I. Uh, you know, I was writing on Skit House at Sketch Comedy Show That's, or whatever. I, yeah, that blows my mind. How did you end up doing that out of high school? Uh, I think I – well, I went to university. I wanted to – I think maybe I sent in a packet or something mm. to – no, I was, I was at RMI. I was doing a show on Channel 31 yeah, and right. um, Rove McManus saw the show and asked to come on as a guest. And then after that, he gave me a job writing for Skid House. That's amazing, um, isn't it? Buddy Rove. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, and was doing a, I think I was doing a Saturday show on Sin FM as well and got some writing work out of that because people heard it and thought it was funny. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, I've never, I mean, I've, yeah, I've worked at Aussie Disposals and, <laughs> and stuff and a, and a video shop, but yeah. I've sort of been busy writing and yeah. I got carried away. Um, how old were you when you went to David Letterman? I know you've spoken about this, but I am intrigued. Uh, I would have been about 20 or 21. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was, you know, I, I managed to go because it was a part of my degree. Uh, right. So they wouldn't have accepted me had I not been doing a media yep. degree in Melbourne. But I think the paperwork was so dreadful. I, I was the last, <laughs> I was the first and last Australian to ever... <laughs> You know, persevere. Yeah, to persevere because it's just the insurance and everything. It was an yeah, absolute right. mess. Um, but, yeah, that was fun. I mean, I mean, like I went on Good Morning Australia. And, I mean, it was Did a big you? deal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, People GMA. were excited. Oh. Yeah. Did you meet Moira? I uh, didn't get to meet Moira. <laughs> I, I met uh, – Right, the music guy. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. For- John, John Foreman. John Foreman. Yeah, met John. Met Belvedere. 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 That's, yeah. that's the one. Uh, John Michael Hausen. <laughs> gave me some money because I had to pay. I gave me some money. Well, he gave me like <laughs> pineapple to go to New York because I had to. It was an unpaid experience. It was like Internship. a GoFundMe just straight to your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of admire, you know, like the, the singing cobbler. Mm. So the, there's, I forget his name, but he's like an opera singer and he's a cobbler and he's Australian. And, uh, you know, so he'd be fixing people's sho- shoes. Dennis, not Dennis Thingo from Carol's My Candlelight. Sounds like a movie. Dennis Walter? I'm trying to think who it was. <laughs> I, no, not Dennis. No, but there was someone who sing Carol's My Candlelight who was like a late discovery opera singer. Yeah. Not Dennis I was at, um, I was at the market the other day. There was an opera singer staying next to the parking machine. Oh, yeah. And really belting it out. They had a hat in front of them or they were just practicing? Well, yeah, I was like squinting and there was a sign in front of him. So I'm like, if you've got to pay for parking, you have to like stand next to a guy like bellowing <laughs> Nessun Dorman next to you. <laughs> but it was so good and like I'm easily seduced by opera. Yeah, it's yeah. very impressive. Mm. I was, remember I was writing on The uh, Biggest Loser <laughs> and uh, there was a, this was after who was the singer, who was the – Britain's Got Talent or whatever. Matt Lucas. No, the David the opera Williams. woman. Oh. Susan Boyle. And we I wanted our own Susan Boyle. <laughs> Everyone was like, get me a Susan Boyle. <laughs> and so we we dragged out Australia's Susan Boyle and she sang opera at the end. But I think she maybe did a couple of takes. It just wasn't working. 
Yeah, you yeah. gotta have that that magic. That yeah, Susan that, Boyle that classic is. Susan Boyle magic. Anyway, <laughs> but that was because people love. Uh, these talent shows are all about that, aren't they? Like mm. the idea of I was doing this and then it's like now. From oh, it's totally. That's exactly what they look for. The backstory. Yeah. yeah. It's all about the backstory. Mm. Um, although it's in retrospect, it's funner when Danny DeVito was dressing corpses in retrospect. <laughs> Who's discovering him that way? Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the ghosts. I'm awake, I'm alive, <laughs> and you're hired. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Sean O'Byrne is a Melbourne-based bookseller turned book writer whose debut collection of satirical short stories, A Couple of Things Before the End, was in 2020 shortlisted for the Queensland Literary and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. His latest work, part of Black Ink's Writers on Writers series, is on Helen Garner, who herself says Sean's fiction threw me into fits of laughter and slyly broke my heart. To discuss his new essay, the author joins us now. Sean, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, of, of all the writers that you could have chosen to investigate your relationship with was there ever any question that you were going with Helen no it was her it was her she gives me the most trouble and leads me to hopefully the most interesting questions mostly to do with uh, the question the question of impersonation how much you should pretend to be other people or how much you should try and speak unusually honestly as yourself mm. and the risks that go along with that and also somehow mixed in with that but running parallel to it just arguing with my other left-wing friends for years about her mm. um, just getting into really difficult arguments about what the literary is compared to the activist or the political, the ways in which they're always in a kind of fight together, the way in which a literary sensibility, that more individual personal sensibility can get into a really hard and sometimes, you know, really bitter argument with a group that's saying, listen, we don't, we don't want to hear a lot of individual stuff right now. We've got a group going and we're going to do something better. So just... Go away, yeah, literary yeah. sensibility. <laughs> Just let us do this good work. And Garner's someone who again and again has really tried to insist that the literary can't be done away with, mm. that, that, that good politics and good activism really needs it. Mm. So it starts with monkey grip. Yes. And so that hits you over the head pretty significantly. Yeah, and tells an astonishing amount you know, pretty much as her, as she says in her diaries, thinly disguised, barely metamorphosized about the f her, a really big, strong first love and the way in which if you've grown up in a family where you're different to the family and you've got a real difficult argument with your family, when you meet someone in your early 20s or mid-20s or at some point and you love them, you almost want to you almost want to transfer yourself to them mm. when you're young. You want to go, all right, maybe I'll give it all to you. And, and I'll just be for you, save you, and somehow save myself. Monkey Grip is such an, um, a beautiful record of, of sort of trying to do that. She says to herself, Nora, the character in that book, says to herself over and over, why so much for him, Jarvo, yeah, mm -hmm. her, her junkie boyfriend, why so much for him? It's like I'm leaking myself away towards him. And the book is kind of a record of doing that and then really slowly recovering just enough sense of a separate self that can't be given away to anybody else. Yeah, It's a frustrating read as yeah. well though isn't it because you just what yes. it's so hard when you're looking at it externally to understand that frame of mind yes and yet we live it yeah? yeah and your friends try and help you with it and they advise you and you can sometimes the thing this is true of monkey group too you can describe it you can actually get enough outside your own compulsion or your own drive or your own need to say i keep doing this and your friends say yes yes you do <laughs> um but you can't stop it and it's because you really want something so badly and reason just can't help you mm. You also discuss in the essay uh, 
Alan Garner's intelligence or, yeah. or maybe a different type of intelligence yeah. that we're accustomed to. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's this is the idea of the literary intelligence, which is especially like, I mean, it's in novels, it's in fiction, but it's also in her non-fiction where she's just so much of the Western type intelligence is this thoroughgoing suppression of the emotions and the bodily you know, we've got like quite a long tradition of this running where if we want to have an argument about something, you don't include the fact that you itch or that you feel sleepy or that you have really um, strong amount of feeling that, that maybe doesn't fit into some sort of coherent political or uh, intellectual system. Um, and what she does is she keeps saying over and over, if I keep reporting my disorganised emotion or, or, or just the different kinds of details of what I'm feeling and seeing in the day, that will interrupt our deep need to make more order. Mm. And again, this goes back to the difference between the literary and the political or the literary and the activist where we really need to make some order sometimes. We really need to hear less sometimes from everything that a human psyche or a human body can come up with. But she's really always testing the limits of how much we can kind of back in, include again. Yeah. And so with looking up to Helen Garner's work, and yet she appears to be conflicted about her own methods. Yes. So how do you, if, if her work is so great, maybe it makes you conflicted, yes. but yet you learn that the source is also conflicted, how do you make, yeah. how do you sort that mess? I, 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 well, look, the technical job of the book, and I don't know if I passed this test or not, was to make that interesting to anybody else who comes along without turning into spiral upon spiral yep. of self-consciousness, the way that people used to say that I'm David Foster Wallace. Did. <laughs> but, um, to, but to turn up for the problem as well, to say, look, if writing is anything, if literary writing is anything that's different to other kinds of writing, it's got to be to do with this sooner or later. It's got to be to do with you saying, okay, what are the things I secretly think more what would it what would it be to make them more public? How can I control that? But also, what's the cost of it? You know, do, how can I bring myself back if I'm like the idea that a lot of writing is just you saving yourself, sort of trying to save enough of a sense of self from people who might try to take it away from you too much. But then her saying, "I never want to become so foolishly separate or angrily separate or sadly separate that I can't come back and see what we need to do together in a good group. And sometimes you can see the or the kind of argument I make is you can see her work as a kind of movement about that, towards that, from monkey grip, which is such a statement of being isolated, not knowing how to get to anybody else, all the way through to her um, last big non-fiction book, This House of Grief, which is about her sitting in a court for years and just watching people like police divers or prosecutors and defenders just all work together without necessarily getting to make a strong statement of their more individual affect, their more individual need. Mm. I find that really moving. I find both the, the way she can do both through her whole career to insist on all this unruly individual sensibility and yet she's so interested in things that we can only do if we suppress that and work as a group yeah mm. how do you keep any sycophancy in check oh that's a, that's a good question <laughs> by trying to tell the truth about when i thought the fiction was unsuccessful so i did take my chance there's a fiction book i think is less successful called cosmo cosmolino um, that Garner wrote in the 1990s and as far as I could tell it was a, where the pressure of trying to be more individual and the difficulty of trying to get out of that and go towards a group led her towards um, a kind of wish for really strong religious authority. Mm -hmm. um, the book is about people who feel a, a certain kind of presence, a supernatural presence in a house and I just found that a bit 
irritating. Um, so one way to cut down your, you know, the part that the part of you that just wants to say, God, she's so strong. She's doing such unusual work and she can do both. She can do all these different kinds, you know, this more individual, but then working back towards the group is to say, all right, but even as a little reader, even as a much more junior writer, I still think I can see how a writer as strong as her can in some way lose her bearings. Yeah. But then what's really moving is she fights back. She mm. comes back from a kind of crisis. She, uh she made a departure from fiction to non-fiction with The First Stone. Yes. And is in some way, that's almost an infamous, infamous yes. text now. Yeah. How do you, and I'm a huge Garner fan as well, how do yeah. you reckon with that and sort of the modern, the modern understanding of that book now? It seems to have changed. I was, I'm a little older, so I remember that book when the release of that book in 1995 and how dismayed and irritated and angry people were because it was, it just seemed like such an interference with a group of young women who were making a complaint about sex harassment. And many people sort of really did just experience that book as just an unnecessary interruption to a really strong campaign against men putting their hands on young women. Um, I think over time, though, it's fair to say that people have, in a way, seen the thing that she was trying to describe, though, and it's really hard for on the left sometimes to, to see this which is even in the midst of the best campaign for the best justice there are mistakes mm. there are overestimations there are over organizations and it's such a it's such a valuable thing because god knows we're coming into a time where there's going to need to be so much more activism and if there's one thing i think ghana holds out to us it's the hope that anyone who's on the left anyone who wants to make strong reform keeps a check on how much they'll organise for that reform, insist that they know right away what's wrong, they know exactly what to do about it. The best part of the first stone, the thing, the thing I think people come back to, is the legitimate enough, difficult, interfering questioning of, wait a minute, you the group who think you can get the best thing done right away, I think you might be doing some things wrong as well. It's The next 40, 50 years are going to be such a yeah. tour of that, I think. Uh, and... Now, has Helen Garner read it and does it matter to you? It does matter, it does matter to me. And one thing, I think, I, I can't remember how I know this, but one rule I think she has, she must have said this in interviews, is that you do attempt to send the book to the person that you are taking an unusual amount from. So I did send her the book before it was published and sometimes, in little, in, again, in my smaller way, in little different ways, I do take her as a model of how to, how to behave in these situations. Yeah. Writing something about somebody, make sure you pass the test of just sending it to them before yeah. it comes yeah. out into the world. Uh, and with the, is there something that listeners can kind of take away f from Helen Garner's writing, not necessarily writers themselves, but mm. is there an attitude or is there something that will will help us in a way? I, I'm, maybe I'm thinking about the kind of ass-covering, you know, faux corporate speak that we're swimming in. Yeah, I think so. I think that, like any, like she's such a strong writer and any strong literary writer, I think gives us help with something that, again, we really need help with, which is the way in which our, we won't clean our human selves properly. We won't clean our personalities out of their will to order, their need to say, I, I'm not going to think that through. I know... Um, I don't, you know, we all, as we get older, all of us are in continuous danger of falling um, victim to this, which is, I'm just not going to re-examine this really strongly. I'm just not going to. It's too difficult. And I'm just going to argue and, you know, go through, especially men, I think, um, get to a point where they're just going to defend the amount they've managed to assemble. And it can, in Garner's fiction, there are examples of people who do that, particularly this woman called Nicola in the um, spare room, where she goes to her death having arranged an amount of 
sort of, I don't know, techniques of the personality that she hopes will be enough, they're really not, and we're all in danger of that yeah. all the time. Well, for more of Sean O'Byrne's erudition and insights, pick up his essay on Helen Garter as part of Black Ink's Writers on Writers series. Sean O'Byrne, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Erudition. <laughs> Thank you. That's right, Triple R. In the news, I spoke about some AFLW players moving clubs, going to Essendon, obviously a new club, got a a lot of new players there. and I mean, there's four new clubs coming in, so that's understandable that there's lots of player movements. But there's also news about Dusty from Richmond, possibly Mm. wanting to make the move to to Sydney. how do you, I mean, Mon, at the moment, you'd be happy that all these players are coming to your new club yes. in Essendon, which is great. Um, your Richmond, Daniel, how do you mind that Dusty is possibly going to move to another club? Does that hurt you or you're just like... Oh, well, I think as the support of the club and I don't think you could have asked for any it's higher done contribution. Absolutely. Mm. But broadly, I find the whole idea that, and I know this sounds like an alien coming from another planet, but from, it... When you see supporters of clubs for 60 years and yet the players themselves mm. mix and match, I, I find it difficult to mentally square that circle. Yeah. Oh, so like you're supporting the same club but it's a different club than the one but the, you're But you're, you're more um, faithful or loyal than, than the, the actual players, players who yeah. constitute the side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you speak of going for clubs for 60 years, I actually have gone for two AFL clubs. I used to go for Hawthorne, which I've spoken about. Um, And at the time, I loved Buddy Franklin. And when Buddy moved to Sydney, I was so passionate. It felt like he had broken up with me. I felt I took it so personally and Sydney was the new girlfriend Mm. and I hated Sydney. Mm. I hated them with a passion. Anytime Buddy was near the ball, I just had. Oh, I was so angry. Like, mm. ridiculous. I remember seeing uh, in front of the papers there was a man that had a Buddy Franklin tattoo uh, with his name uh, and a Hawthorne jumper and then, like, the headline was like, oh, what's this guy going to do about his tattoo? It was like, that's not Buddy's fault. <laughs> yeah. Buddy, like, look buddy, at this guy. What, what about this guy? He got this tattoo <laughs> for you and you're leaving him? But, yeah, some people, are, you know, get really, really devastated about it. Um and I was at the time. Now, I, I mean, I completely see. I'm not too fussed about it anymore. I, I say that now, but if someone leaves, you change clubs, though. I yes. think that's worse. No, I did because of the marriage equality. Hawthorne didn't yeah. support it, and um, okay, it's fine. Western Bulldogs did. Anyway, it was it just so, so happened after Hawthorne won some premierships, and then Bulldogs won when you changed to them. But I anyway. changed the year after 2000, but I got the women's AFLW premiership, so that's good. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, my my footy club, uh, I've been with the same women's cricket club and women's football club my entire life. Um, so I love it. I'm quite very loyal. But I understand that people have to move for different circumstances. Mm. Yep. It's just not me. Um, and my women's football club, we had a big <laughs> breakup. So like about a 12 to 15 of our players left and went to another club. So there was a big rivalry between our club and that other club that they went to. And we were all of a sudden really weak in the competition. We went from being one of the top teams to being one of the bottom and the team that they went to were stronger because they just gained all these players. Um, I was retired and then we were playing them for the first time after Mm. the breakup Mm. and the coach called me and said, Bobby, we need you to come back for this game. We had a former captain that used to captain our club was playing for this other team now. They're like, Bobby, we need you to come in. I'm like, okay. 
I mean, I haven't trained, I haven't played. They're like, that's okay, we'll get you. We, we just need to not get thumped and just show some pride. Can you please just come and help? I was like, okay, I'll, I'll come and help. And so I hadn't played in over a year and then they said, okay, so you're going to play on the ball and we'll get you to tag this former captain who had won the league best and fairest five times. Okay. What? Yeah. Now, <laughs> is that an insult to the people who are in the team? Like what, none of them were We didn't good have any players. Like we just lost so many players. Okay. Did you mean for my club? Yeah, like as in they caught, you weren't playing anymore. They couldn't yeah. rely on any of the existing players. They had to call a veteran to come back. Yeah, I think my role when I played was a bit of the brunt force, like the... Mongrel? Bit of mongrel sometimes. <laughs> so whenever, yeah. So this player who had left us, she was a superstar. And whenever she got tagged, it was my job to get rid of the tagger. So okay. if she was always, even anyone was getting tagged or annoyed, uh, they'd be like, "Bobby, can you just get them out of the way?" Just and so I'd just bump them. them yeah. No, I would never coat hanger, <laughs> but I would bump them and I would tackle them harder. And I would just be because taggers are always in your face and they're t- touching and pulling, and mm. so I would just literally go up and bump them out of the way. Mm. And I mean, what are you going to do? You're annoying this player. So now this player all of a sudden was my enemy, and I had protected her for so many years. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Who is going to knock me out? Like, because I'm going to annoy her. And we were on the ball and I was being so annoying to her. And she was just so, she's so placid. She would never retaliate. Mm. Uh, And that's what you kind of hope for half the time, give away a free kick or just put them off their game. But she's so good. She was just ignoring me. I was bumping her. I was pushing her. And all of her teammates were just watching. No one did a thing. (laughs) Like, you need me on the other side to protect. No one did anything. Anyway, this went on for the first 10 or 15 minutes, she is very fit. I was running around Mm. and bumping and this and that. And then I was running towards the ball in front of their box. And as I was, I don't know, 20 metres in front of their box, I tripped over a blade of grass. Nothing. I tripped over nothing. I fell on my face in front of their box. I mean, (laughs) the laughter. (laughs) happened after. It was literally my face was in the mud. You just slipped. I just fell out. I was, it was the lactic acid in my legs. I had just collapsed <laughs> over nothing, right? I thought I had been running for so long. That is so sweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so sweet. I fell down and I looked up and then everyone was laughing and then I just put my hands up and went, thank you. <laughs> I'll be here all day. Anyway, and then I ran off. Um, you know, it was being live streamed because people were laughing, but they're like, what did, what, what happened? Did you? And I was like, they're like, what did you trip over? It looked like you tripped over something. It's like nothing. I literally collapsed because I couldn't run anymore because I hadn't trained (laughs) and I had to run. We had a look at the live stream. We watched it back because we thought it was hilarious. It was three minutes and 35 seconds. That's how long I had been running until the lactic acid. (laughs) So you, but you felt like it was. I felt like I had been running a marathon chasing this bloody star player and bumping and falling and getting up. I tell you, it was it was justice. It was such sweet karma for the opposition for me to just oh fall on my face. And hey, I mean, I actually do love this opposition, and I've emceed about half a dozen of their events. So it's you know, it's it's fine. We we all get along. But in that moment, oh, I deserve that. Not fine, according to the text line. You've built yourself quite a rep. Someone called you Bobby the Enforcer. Oh, the and, Enforcer. And said, um, rumor has it she used to count how many girls she made cry rather than how many possessions she got. So. That was in high school, not in senior women's football. I, I went for the ball. Wait, that's true. Did you make people cry? I mean, they didn't know the rules. It was just by a fair tackle. <laughs> yeah. They were fair tackle. It was literally, it was, yeah, it was just contact football. Richard Watts was saying uh, off air that he was at playing community company. He said he admitted to the person who was 
on him. The uh, rock uh, dog, a dirty rock yeah, dog. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. And the rock dog led him across the mark. Oh, oh yeah. that's right, and gave away, <laughs> away for me. <laughs> so cheeky. Oh, so cheeky. Uh, but, yeah, uh, the way you describe it, being thrown onto the best player, falling over. I hope you won the uh, JVC Funniest Home Videos <laughs> package or <laughs> took home the major prize in almost football legends or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Food aficionado Michael Harden joins us once again in studio. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, it's great to have you back, and I bet you've been busy. I have been a little busy. I've been. Uh, I had a nice little trip down to Tasmania last week, which is why I couldn't join you. So you know, it's like I would have preferred to be in here, but instead I was down in Hobart. Being wined and dined in very delicious restaurants, a new new Italian restaurant called Pepina, which was mm. delicious, and staying at luxury apartments, and then being given a Lexus to drive. For, oh, not a Lexus, a um, what's the Tesla, Elon's car. Right, I was say Lexus. Um, and take yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, but oh. it's yeah with the Tesla to drive from up uh, from Hobart to Launceston. Oh, the sacrifices nice. you make. I know. I know, um, no, I had a pretty hard. good music bar last week. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, tell tell us about it later. Um, <laughs> So now that you're back, do you have a, a, a finer appreciation for for Melbourne? How, how are we going? I think we're doing really well. And it's sort of like I was just kind of looking at it and I don't know why I was thinking about change and new generations and things looking hopeful for the future. I'm not sure why that would have, <laughs> would have occurred to me. But I just sort of suddenly thought – I was looking at restaurants in terms of that and I went to a really great um, place – um, last week, and I've been back a couple of times since, called Signor Enzo, which is in Brunswick, and it's um, it was it's been there for a while, but it's it's an aperitivo bar originally, and uh, they have just um, changed over. They used to do like a really small amount of food and everything, but they've just changed over to this model where the um, where the owner Vince um, has taken on um, a chef, Lorena Corso, but she has taken it. She, it's her business, mm-hmm. so it's like he's got the bar and she's got the kitchen. And they're working together sort of like to do that. And so the food has gone from being, you know, sort of there to sort of enhance the drinks to being its own right. And she's she's a great chef. She's been uh, – she worked at um, – she was at Anchovy and mm. she was at Napier Quarter. So she's – and she's really good. She's a Sicilian woman. And um, – Bobby, this is one for you because it's like pretty much everything. I went with a um, with a gluten free friend, oh, perfect. and uh, and it's uh, pretty much the menu, pretty much everything but the bread was available. Yeah, so right. That's delicious great. food, like really good food, um, sort of Sicilian stuff. Like you know, some of it it's kind of like like she does a lot of things over charcoal. She's got a little grill out the back and everything. But it was just this really good thing because it was interesting at the end because I didn't hadn't noticed that it was that. But at the end we were sort of presented with two bills, one for the food and one for the drink. And, right. then, and then Vince was kind of going, yeah, well this is how we're doing it. So you can order at the table all the drinks. You can order through QR code at the table, and then you sort of pay for your food separately. But it's just this really good sustainable sustainable business where Lorena doesn't have to kind of like come up with a whole um, restaurant herself and organise wine lists and everything. She can concentrate on what she's doing, mm-hmm. which is contacting small farmers and, you know, having particular nights where she's sort of doing really regional food and stuff. So it's like a nice little business model yeah. that's happening. And there's a, it seems to be more of that, sort of these small 
ways to do things that are cheaper than setting up a big traditional restaurant. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you're still welcome at the bar to just perch there. Oh, absolutely. You okay. can go in for a cocktail. They do really good cocktails. Vince's a great cocktail maker and everything's got an Italian slant. So they're old fashioned there, for example. Um, he throws a maro in there as well. So mm. it's got a li- like a little bit of bitterness as well. And he does a really good version of an Italian margarita, which is uh, mm. definitely worth, uh, worth a sip or... Fine. <laughs> Ten, yeah. perhaps. Senor Enzo, it's called. Senor Enzo. Senor Enzo. It's in Michael Street in Brunswick. So oh, it's, cool. um, yeah, just a little, it's a really cute little place. You might need to, if you want to eat, might be a good idea to ring ahead and book. It used to be a walk-in, but the word is starting to get out. That, right. Uh, that, that she's mm. doing really good food. And then so. where did you hop to? Um, and then the other one that I was thinking about, this again in this whole thing is like, um, I think I've talked about Che before, which is the Korean restaurant that mm. used to be mm. in the Brunswick apartment building. Then she moved out to Cockatoo. Um, so that she had more room to do more fermenting. This is a Korean restaurant that's sort of very much based on fermenting, you know, making your own misos, all of that sort of stuff. And then, but of course, being out in Cockatoo and trying to do a business, even though it's still a six-seat business, she's been having trouble with the council because she's putting it in a non-commercial area. So um, she has just hooked up with Ian Ling from the Lincoln, and he's he has a um, a space that he has functions there that used to be his restaurant Superling that closed down over the pandemic. And uh, she is now doing like a pop-up there. So it's sort of like you can get access to Che because she's got this, there's like a waiting list of like 5,000 people waiting to mm. get into this six-seat restaurant. And so she, I think she was just looking at it going, oh my God, that's just like it keeps going mm. up. I've got to try and clear some of this. And she's very sort of connected with her customers as well. So it's sort of like I think this is was a really good way for the, for the both of the things to happen. So, mm. so people that want to get a taste of Che can now go to her temporary pop-up before she actually gets the, um, the cockatoo place up and running. So it's sort of like it's a Another one of sort of people moving in and being a, being a little bit uh, nimble about you know different spaces that are mm. sitting there empty otherwise. Yeah, well, we all know councils are anti nimble. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly nimble. What is that? So, and then uh, yeah, and I think another one that I've talked about before that sort of falls into the category was which was Parks, which mm. is the one that I was telling you about. So that's another an answer. anagram. Yes, for scrap. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is another, he's using Dennis Yong is the chef there and he is, um, it's associated with the Aru group and the Sunda group, um, which is, uh, you know, two great restaurants in the city. And he's doing things like using all the, um, left, a lot of leftover stuff from those kitchens, including outer leaves of lettuces and leftover scones and things like that and turning those into misos, fermenting them, turning them into new dishes. But it's also the restaurant has been put into an empty restaurant that was, you know, sitting there empty when it went out of business during pandemic as well. So sort of repurposing places as well. So it's like this new which is so much part of the philosophy of parks in the, it's sort of like this scrap restaurant. Let's use that. Mm. And they've hardly done anything to it. Like it was there's no huge fit out or anything like that. It's just kind of like they've just moved in. Mm. And completely transformed what it does because it was was sort of like an Italian cafe before. So there's that one. Too. Can I ask just as an aside, where, what do you think about the lunch? Is the is should the lunch make an extraordinarily huge comeback? Like in terms of you know the I feel old like you're leading the business then. lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but it, lunch is a great way to see 
new restaurants, isn't it? Oh, it's really good because it's sort of like at the moment, it's actually really difficult to get bookings in restaurants at the moment. I think everybody's still sort of a little bit reluctant to go overseas and stuff. So there's still a lot of people with a lot of money looking to spend it around the traps. Mm. And so it's like, you know, you can sometimes it can be you can be months out before you can get a table at some of these restaurants. So lunch is a really good thing. I think for the psyche of the community, having a long lunch on a Friday is probably a really good idea as <laughs> well. So, you know, there's, um, there's a, a, a just speaking of that, the um, there's a pub in Carlton the Town Hall um, that do a lunch a Friday lunch special, which you get a steak and three martinis what? as part of a package. So you know, <laughs> three, three, martinis. three martinis. Where was this? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Run, run don't walk. It's <laughs> Town Hall Hotel in Johnson Street, Fitzroy. So it's sort of I like yeah. so really bringing back the old sort of madman idea. Exactly. Of, yeah, it's uh, called the what, Don't what Drive Home. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, so um, the other one that I was thinking about that's kind of like falls into the category of, of this, um, you know, pivoting, whatever, um, is the chef Tom Serafian, who he's um, the guy that he's got a really good hummus. Um, he used to be at Parsaracen. He's worked all around the traps and everything. But at the moment, he's like this, he's just doing a series of pop-ups around the place. So he's like a chef without a restaurant, but he's kind of almost constantly here sort of do it and he does really delicious food he's just finished um doing a really interesting um collaboration at a place called gray and gray which is in northcote which they do sort of um georgian slash russian food the um the chef there boris is um is you know been in america for a long time got a michelin star over there and he's now doing amazing food there but um tom went there and did he's got armenian roots so it was sort of all sort of you know kind of in the same geographic area and so he sort of did the, did a pop-up of Armenian food so he's like a really good one to follow around because he's always doing collaborations he's done collaborations with um, Victor Leong from Li Ho Fook and he's done sort of you know lots he does it all over the place with lots of different people so that's kind of another guy that's kind of like doesn't want to stay in one restaurant he's got his product line and then he's got he does pop-ups and collaborations with people all over the city so mm. it's um it's another kind of flexible kind of way of, of working that's not the traditional restaurant model, which I think is really interesting right yeah. now. So. Um, and what about the – are you mixing up the – because we know it's a hot ticket to go on a dinner date with Michael Harden. Mm-hmm. How, how are you with, – with the city opening up, how are you fielding requests? It's a lottery. <laughs> um. <laughs> like the Snowman's it's, it's, it's really oversubscribed. <laughs> Daniel, so yeah. you know, it's kind of like – but, you know, I might be able to push you up the queue yeah. if you like. <laughs> Um, and, and what about uh, postcodes we could look at that are maybe burgeoning? Is there yeah, do you have a not just not just sort of central? Yeah, yeah. Apart I, from cockatoo. Yeah, yeah, cockatoo. It's sort of like well, you know, the west <laughs> is where things are really happening. I think at the moment in terms of you know Foot, Footscray. Still, I'm still you know you know I'm an you know you know guy. So it's sort of like but you know Footscray particularly I think at the moment is really cool. It's got there's lots of young people doing really interesting businesses out there. You know, Seddon and Yarraville have been there for a while, but Footscray itself is fine, you know, has got, and it's got that really good mix of traditional businesses there, you know, the, the, some of the best Vietnamese food mm-hmm. in town and the really good, you know, there's a lot of, lot of um, different um, food from the African continent, you know, they're sort of like, you know, Ethiopian and Sudanese mm-hmm. and um, different uh, types of restaurants there. So that that is 
doing really well. Um, I think, you know, and then in regionals, there's sort of like, you know, there's some really interesting stuff happening out further. There's a couple of, there's down in Geelong, there's a new, um, there's a new French restaurant called La Cochette that um, I haven't been to yet, but I'm hearing really good um, things about. And friends of mine the other day did a thing that I'm going to do, which is get the ferry from Docklands that takes you down to Geelong. And this restaurant's on the Geelong waterfront. You can go down there, eat very delicious French food, and then pop yourself back on the ferry and tootle back up to Melbourne again. Come so, on. Yeah. What an you know, it's like oh. I, didn't, I didn't even realise the ferry from Melbourne to Geelong existed. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know how, how much it's frequented. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think there's a, there's not a lot of trips a day. Yeah. I think it might be sort of down and back sort of once or twice a day. But uh, they said that it was an incredibly pleasant experience, oh. to sort of particularly the trip back when they – Snoozed. Yeah, gorgeous. <laughs> uh, well, you know, your Tesla's running outside and exactly, we don't want to keep exactly. you. Exactly. Where, where is the charging station? <laughs> <laughs> you know, help, so. help yourself to a muesli bar on the way out. Uh, Michael Harden, eye-watering as always. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Triple R. What a balm to have with us this morning, Friday Funny Bugger, Prue Blake. Morning, Prue. Good morning, everyone. Mm. Uh, you're just recently returned. Just recently back from Roadshow. I've been all over, baby. I've yeah. been part of Queensland, regional Victoria. That's about it. How much do you, how much do you vary your comedy on, like, if you're in, do people in far north Queensland get the same jokes that people in, you know, Ooh. Bendigo get? I don't want to give it away, okay, but it was okay. the exact same <laughs> <laughs> material <laughs> the whole way through. If there's one thing we know about Prue, it's creating more work for herself and no <laughs> tangible I love benefit. That. Yeah. She's a one-trick pony. Yeah. Uh, and so it, that must have been exciting. Is there a bus? Uh, what are your road stories? Ooh, we were in a Kia Carnival, I think, Ooh. like a big people mover. It's pretty exciting. Mm. A lot of sing-alongs. Uh, you know, by the time you finish a show, you're like, I'm done talking. Yeah, I want to yeah. sing my little heart out. <laughs> do, you have, do you take turns driving or do you have a driver? There's a driver. Okay. A tour manager that does the driving. Okay, they cool. don't trust us. Mm, no, fair enough. They're comedians behind the wheel getting <laughs> wild. And uh, what about music? Are you allowed to be in control or no one rates you because you're too young? I was in control of the music. Oh, were you? The whole time, yeah. I did, oh. I did great. You just got to listen to the conversation and DJ to the vibe, you know? Oh, that's <laughs> you an yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, sorry, if you want some tips. Yeah, you talk off. Yeah. Got to pay more attention to the vibe. Yeah, what are people talking about? What are they into? <laughs> uh, and so who were you there? Have you made friends? Oh, I've made great friends. Mm. I was there um, with – we did one tour. There was – I was on it, Prue Blake. There was also Brett Blake and Blake Freeman. Get out. Yeah, Get out. so we were calling it the Great Australian Blake Off. <laughs> <laughs> We oh just God. had Hamish Blake on board. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Almost a full set of comedy Blakes. Um, and and so, uh, what about the the food? Did you know? Did you are you a road hog turning up in diners? Oh. You, you strike me as a hog. I'm a road hog for sure. We ate this thing in a chuka called a pig dog. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever heard of a pig dog, but it's a sausage wrapped in bacon, wrapped in cheese, wrapped in pastry, <laughs> and it was unreal. <laughs> Absolutely, I loved it. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Couldn't get enough. Uh, oh, my God. But, but, but what's been on your mind? It's been a while mm. since we've seen you. Well, yes, yeah, so obviously a 
lot of time to think in mm. these Kia Carnival rides. And uh, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about... Did you, did you ever watch the show Doomsday Preppers? I haven't, but I've always wanted to. Yeah. And I just think it's funny that the whole premise of that show is like, let's laugh at these people. They're too prepared. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to be this prepared. <laughs> and now it's like, no, they were right. Yeah. Oh. Now we should have been doing that. Should have been storing canned food we in should, our basement. We should have, I mean, about. I need to build a basement. This is my... <laughs> I love how much they've been vindicated. It's yeah. It's really quite charming it's absolutely like i feel like now i it's the tables have turned mm. and i'm the cool kid asking the nerdy girl to do my assignment yeah. i'm like how do i prepare <laughs> what what do i need to do how do i prepare correctly exactly <laughs> have, have you been watching it for years and years no right just dabble I, I i was you know i was coy about it too i was like they're preparing too much yeah <laughs> yeah they don't need to do it uh, are we talking how have you increased your prepping are we talking like well, powdered water or i've just been thinking about it i would like to buy a life straw you know that one that you can just put in any sort of water and then it filters and oh, what? Oh, yeah. No, I yeah. did not know about Didn't this. Didn't know about that either. you got to get one. And I also desperately want one of those things you can buy on Amazon to break the glass in your car window because I'm always convinced I'm going to drive into a lake. Oh, yeah. And then oh. you have to get the door open immediately. Otherwise, the pressure's too much. You yeah. can't get out. You so, need to break the window. So you can get those on online? Oh, Amazon. Oh, or, wow. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be something more ethically... Uh, so, how, do you know, <laughs> what does it look like? I mean, it's like what, a... Why not just have a little a wrench hammer? in there? Yeah, a hammer. Well, I think the glass is, like, glazed and pretty hard to get through, right? So, I think it's like a spring-loaded yeah. thing with a point. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yes. But this is my problem. How do I know that it breaks glass? Underwater. Right? Because people can sell me anything. You can't test it. You can't test it. I don't have spare glass lying around. No. To have a crack on. You've got to go hang around car parks later night yeah. smashing the windows. <laughs> Let me in. Quality control across <laughs> Elon Musk held that press conference and said, this uh, anti-shattering glass, watch this. And oh, yeah. And it just went through the glass and smashed oh, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and also those Teslas are just a little death trap as it is. Is that yeah. so? Yeah, because they get caught on fire. Oh, right. As soon as they catch on fire, the electrical mechanisms that work the car shut down so you can't open any doors. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. You have to go through like this kind of system of levers and pulleys. It's like a little mini game of saw. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> suck for you in the lake. Yeah, in the lake. That's a nightmare. <laughs> but I just think, yeah, I've got to, I've got to find a doomsday prepper. So if anyone's listening, mm. reach out because I, I just want to know that I'm doing it right. I'm going to illegally build a basement underneath my apartment mm-hmm. building. But I'm worried what's going to happen is I'm going to do it too airtight, and I'm going to go down <laughs> early. I'm just like, oh, Wi-Fi's down. Better get in the basement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then just be slowly trapped there and all I've packed is, like, beans and I don't like beans yeah. and just stuck there slowly suffocating, eating my beans. Mm. Like, this is worse. This is worse than anything than that could be happening. Being above ground. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. You need to make friends with the preppers now because, as you mm. say, at a minute to midnight, you don't want to, you know, start being too slick in your come-ons. No. Because it seems cynical. But I think the real irony could be, like, the cool guys that did get me to do their assignments, they're just going to take shelter in, like, one of those fancy public toilets that does the full wash cycle every 15 minutes. Oh, and sprays oh, all over them. Yeah. yeah. They say they're long enough, they're going to get gills. They'll be perfect for sea level rise. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you, th- if the world did, let's say there was a fallout or whatever, and mm. what, what do you think is going to be the cause? Ooh, I think... Um, 
cockroach poisoning, like yeah, some sort of right. disease from cockroaches. Like a locust plague. Yeah, like a locust. Cockroach. Yeah, because it's just so gross. Everyone will be like, I'm ending it. Yeah. <laughs> the cockroaches can have it. Because <laughs> what are the doomsday preppers? Is it... What what what's there? What do they usually think is the end? I is think the they're generally coming? religious. Yeah, okay. and it's kind of a apocalypse situation okay. where a rapture. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and what about people joining you? Are you going to be oh. open hearted? Do you know what? I've never once given a second of thought to anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Just me and my beans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe they can come in if they get in in time. (laughs) That airlock's going to be sealed tight. (laughs) Uh, But but is there... So the apartment is... I I don't see that happening. Obviously, you're not going to get permission, so it's going to be illegal. But I I don't know who's going to help you build this. And Mm. there'll be lots of red flags being raised. chip out my own apartment with, like, a little spoon slowly. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm against the clock. Maybe. I also find the the preppers, unless it's the television producers making them, but they would wear camo... Oh yeah. yeah, like that was always that was a barrier to overcome. Oh, you like, probably didn't see me come in because I was in so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> invisible, just a floating head. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> uh, but yeah, is, is there? Uh, you know, what do you? What what do your do your parents worry about you? <laughs> I mean, you're saying you're on your own, and you're on your own. You're digging out your spoon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. beans. I guess I, I, I'm not on my own all the time. <laughs> Just in this doomsday scenario, I'm yeah. like every man for himself. Yeah. <laughs> if you had to pick one person or two oh. people to be with you, who, who would they be? Which Li- of the blacks living or dead? Or? <laughs> <laughs> but living to start and dead, I assume after 24 yeah. hours. <laughs> Too long in the basement. I'd probably take my partner. Oh, uh, yeah. You haven't even mentioned your yeah. partner. <laughs> They're oh. not prepared. They don't deserve to be mentioned. If, I'm telling you, if he builds his own basement, then <laughs> <laughs> bring something to the table. Maybe he's stocking the powdered water. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you can come in. <laughs> what is your preferred canned good if, if beans is off the table? Ooh, maybe tin spaghetti? Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. You've got to remember these are all things you've got to eat cold, right? You've got to yeah. eat cold. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you can eat spaghetti cold. If I was a chef yeah. and you, you know how you cook a meal and it goes out into yeah. the world and they're right there and they're enjoying it, but if I was like making tin spaghetti, spaghetti, but I was like proud of my spaghetti, mm. it's such a slow burn. You never know. You yeah. never know. It'd be like building the pyramids, like it's going to be generations <laughs> until it's appreciated. <laughs> That's like those, I'm obsessed with uh, videos of people trying these dehydrated food packs. Oh, yeah. Where they have this like, you kind of rip off the seal and then you add water. And expand. And, yeah, and it expands and it becomes real food. It's mm. exciting. And you I'm don't like, want to go opt for that. You'd rather just go with oh, the tins. Oh, no, I'll bring some of those in. Cold tins. I stayed at a, a house once that had um, tinned cucumber. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Tinned cucumber. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that was a thing. Yeah, I so sliced. Yeah, I get. I never opened. I certainly did own it. In I just a, judged why, them for having it. Okay, this is my question. Why not just pickles? Yeah, well, maybe they didn't want the, you know, the the brininess of, yeah, the, of the, the acidity. I'll never know. I'll, I'll never, never know. go back there. I think if you're gonna uh, furnish your cupboard yeah. for prepping, you totally. should buy some things that you don't ordinarily have just for a bit of fun. But oh, I think yeah. my problem is I'd have no willpower to not. Try them all straight away, yeah. and just get into everything, and it's like going off immediately. <laughs> I think so. Just surrounded by rotting food. 
Like, if, let's say you don't have Cocoa Pops ever. You're not allowed yeah. it. Oh. But, like, let's say, you know, in a prepping scenario. i got to have them. Yeah, yeah I'll have some. Have a... Yeah, and you, you give yourself one wacky cereal a week. Oh, you... I'm going to finally try Lucky Charms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. And then the cockroaches will get in and I'll be like, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> At least I tried Lucky yeah. Charms. I'm happy to go. Yeah. Uh, so do you have, what's your performing schedule like these days? Ooh, it's pretty busy at the moment. I'm at Comedy Republic all weekend doing shows. That's pretty exciting. And then back in Melbourne for a few weeks. Mm. And then off to Edinburgh in August. Have you been to Edinburgh before? I've been before, but not for the festival. Oh, cool. I've seen, you know, just a normal city. And I hear that when I go this year, it'll be a full rager. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what's in store for you? Ooh, well, it's actually technically my prize for winning Raw last year. Oh, yeah. So it's a delayed prize. And then I'm doing a little lineup show with some friends. And I'm staying in some dodgy student accommodation. Doesn't matter. <laughs> the accommodation sorted? Yeah, accommodation sorted. I mean, sorted. isn't that just a giant headache for everybody? It's a nightmare. Mm. Did Danielle <laughs> Walker, she's going as well? Was that she be going? Yeah. Yeah, great. How exciting. There'll be, I think heaps of people are going. Cause oh, great. Everyone that had booked to go in 2020... They're finally all their shows got moved to this year as well. So yeah, right. Fun. Yeah, big fun. bonanza, big bonanza. Yeah, we'll send the Blakes over and the relive the dream. <laughs> we'll do the show. Yeah, but... we'll do the Blake uh, off. I think the Blake off should contain more baking. Though. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people want in their stand up. Uh, Prue Blake, so great to see you. And thanks for coming in it was today. Great to chat. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website.